Well, good morning. It is good to see everybody today. I hope everybody had a, a great Thanksgiving um, and you know, didn't eat too much and all of those kinds of things, but glad that you guys are here this morning. For those of you that are guests with us, thanks for being here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Bill and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. If you are a guest with us, maybe one of the things that you're thinking about, and I don't know that this is always the greatest way to think about church, but it's just, it's natural for us to do that, is to kind of ask the question, well, if I'm a part of this church, like, what's in it for me? What do you hope maybe to do for me? And so if, if I were to answer that question, here's what my hope would be, that while you are here, we help your faith to come alive. And what I mean by that is that faith begins to be something that's not just what you do when you go to church on Sundays or, or whatever, but that faith begins to be that thing that determines everything that you do in life. And then when you get to that point, as you're learning and growing, what we want to be able to do is equip and encourage and empower you to take the things that you know, what you're learning, what God is doing in your life and who you are, and invest in the lives of other people to make a greater difference um, in the lives of people around you. Because that's what we feel like God has called us to do, those of us who are followers of Jesus. Um, we've been called to take what we have and invest it in the lives of other people. So that's what we hope um, is accomplished while you're here. I do want to let you know uh, and invite you to be a part of something that we're doing on Wednesday um, this week, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Uh, we are having an outdoor worship service. Um, families can come a little bit earlier. We'll do some, some stuff with kiddos starting around 6.15 in our kids' building, and then our service will start at 7. And I'll just tell you this, like, you know, lots of times, those of you that are a regular part of the table, you know we're really honest, and so I'm going to be really honest with you today and say that our staff is divided on what is happening on Wednesday. Um, some of us think that it is a kickoff to the Christmas season, while others do not want to utter those words. So here's the reality. It's a kickoff to the Christmas season. Now, that doesn't mean that, you can tell what side I'm on, that doesn't mean that the service itself is a Christmas service. We may not do any Christmas songs, but what we want to do is before things get super busy in the Christmas season, stop and take a breath and focus on Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished for us and have that be the background for everything that leads us into all of the Christmas stuff and the parties and all of the things that we're going to do. Um, so yes, the kids' stuff that they're going to do, Christmas-oriented. Our service may not be Christmas-oriented at all other than maybe I'll mention it a little bit. So Brandy and Brandy's in, the, in this service, our, our kids' director, she and I are on the same team um, on our um, ideas for, the, for this week. So um, talk to Brandy after the service. So that's Wednesday at 7. It's going to be fun outside with fire and, you know, all the things, right? Um, so uh, come and enjoy that. Let me pray for us and we'll get to the message. Father, thanks so much for the grace and the mercy that you've extended to us. Um, God, as we've sung this morning, we recognize that we are sinful people, lost um, without hope, apart from the work that Jesus has done for us. And Father, as we spend some time in your word, I pray that you would uh, remind us of the truth of the gospel and what it has done for us. And Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, that we wouldn't be distracted by anything that's going on around us uh, or, or what's happening later today or maybe all of the things that are happening over this next month. Um, but Father, in these moments, let's hear from you. Um, challenge us, encourage us, and just continue to bless us with your presence. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Stand By Me is the iconic 
80s movie that tells the story of four 12-year-old boys in 1959 who go on this journey to the outskirts of town where they hope to find the body of another boy who had been reported to have uh, died. He had recently gone missing. And so they make their way to the outskirts of town, and while after almost getting run over by a train, spending the night out in the woods alone, and then swimming through a leech-infested pond, they do finally make their way to their destination, and they're able to find the body of this boy. But their story is about far more than just going to see a dead body, because it's a story of four boys who are just processing life while on this epic adventure, because it's a story of friendship. It's a story of one boy who's wrestling with a dad who had abandoned him, another who his dad was present in his life, but yet very much unconcerned with anything that was going on in his life. It was another who was desperately looking for the affirmation from his father, but yet would never get it. And then the last boy who was just struggling because his family was so very poor and just dealing with all that that meant for him. And so it's these four boys on this epic adventure reflecting and processing life together. And so I wonder if you've ever taken the opportunity to think back over the course of your life about experiences that have shaped who you are, the adventures that maybe establish some values that guide your life. What, what, what were those experiences that helped you to understand who you are and how you want to live, those times where you reflected and learned something valuable? I think there are a lot of advantages of living in the modern world that we do. I have found myself thinking a lot over the years. I don't know what people did without computers. Uh, there is no way that I would have ever graduated from college, much less seminary, if I had to type on a typewriter. Right? I would have given up a long time ago, so I'm thankful for computers um, in that way. If I, though it hasn't been that long ago, I sometimes think to myself, I'm like, what did we do before cell phones? Like, if you went to the grocery store and forgot what you were supposed to get, like, what did you do? You just drive back home and then go back again? Um, so there's a lot of value in that. I love the fact that we have Google and Siri that will be able to answer in a matter of seconds any question that we can ever think of. But yet at the same time, I do think we've lost something. I think we've lost the time to think and process and reflect. At least for me and our family, like, one event is stacked on top of another. I mean, our calendar is just full of stuff. And then, you know, just thinking about how we have the, any, all the information we could ever want literally sitting in the palm of our hand at any time, we never have to think. And so we never process all that's happening in our lives. It was really interesting, though, back in the beginning of COVID, during the, the first part of the shutdown, something that we did as a family, is that we started taking walks right after lunch. It was because in those first few weeks when we literally couldn't do anything else, uh, life slowed down and we had time to think and to process. And so in part, that's what I want you to do today. I want you to, just over the next few minutes, I want you to think. I want you to process. I want you to, to reflect. We're finishing our series called Enough today. So I want you to think about 
as all that we've talked about in the life of Jesus over the last several weeks together, I want you to think about what you believe. Because we're actually looking at a passage of Scripture this morning in Luke chapter 24. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, Luke 24, 13 through 35. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Um, or if you are a version Bible app user, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along with the scripture there and the notes and all of those things are there as well. But the passage that we're looking at today describes the journey of two disciples who are processing all that they had just experienced as they watched their Lord and Master die. And so as we look at what they were processing, what happened with them and their epic adventure, what I want you to do is think about what you believe. And specifically, I want you to think about what you believe about Jesus. In light of all that we've talked about over the last several weeks, like what is it that you believe? And not like what is it that you think I want you to say that you believe, or not what maybe others expect that you would say if you were asked what you believe. I, in your heart of hearts, what is it that you truly believe? I want you to, to think about that. Let's jump in and look at the text this morning as you're beginning to think and process about what you believe. Listen to this epic adventure in Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What's the dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking along? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened, where, happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. And so they said to them, the, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Beside all this, in the third day, since these things happened, moreover, some women from our group astounded us, and they arrived at the, at the early at the tomb, and when they didn't find the body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that has, the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the, for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near to a village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening. Now the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them, and he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us? while he was, he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. And that very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened 
on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As I think about what is happening at the beginning of this section, in the, I can't imagine what really the disciples were thinking about and how they were processing the events that took place. Because in a matter of moments, everything that they thought about what was going to happen in their lives was thrown into turmoil. And so really, I was thinking about it, and I can't come up with one event in my entire life that was anything like this. Because in a matter of hours, everything that they had known, everything that they had believed in, everything that they had thought was seemingly gone. And so here they were on this road processing, thinking about what had taken place over the last few days as they watched Jesus die. It's interesting to me how how this passage begins because it says, now the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus. And and I stop at the very beginning of that and I say, well, wait a minute, two of who? Who were they? Who, Who were these people? What did they know or what should they have known? Just who were these two? We actually find out later that one of them is named Cleopas. As they begin talking about or talking to Jesus, they find, we find that one of them is named Cleopas. Now, some of you would readily admit that you are not, like you don't know a ton about the Bible, and so you hear the, the name Cleopas and you think, well, it's just added to a list of names that I, of people that I don't really know much about. Others of you might like to think that you are a Bible scholar, and so you think to yourself when you hear Cleopas, oh yeah, Cleopas. Wait a minute, am I supposed to know anything about Cleopas? No, you don't know anything about Cleopas, because literally the only thing that we read about Cleopas is what we just read, which wasn't very much. We we know that Cleopas wasn't one of the 12 disciples, so he wasn't one of the, 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 the closest followers of Jesus. We literally just read his name right here. Now, having said that, though, that doesn't mean that the early church didn't try to figure out who Cleopas was. So a lot, in some of the early church writings, many people believe that Cleopas was the same as Clopas that we read about in John 19.25. Now, just give you a hint, we don't read a lot about, Cleo, uh, about Clopas there. We just read that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was standing near the foot of the cross when Jesus died. Now, but there is some significance to that, though, because many people in the early church believed that Clopas was actually the brother of Joseph, which would have made him Jesus' uncle. It's kind of interesting. Now, we don't know that for sure, but certainly that's interesting. Now, the other disciple that is on this journey is never named. Again, the early church tried to figure out who this person was, and some in the early church associated this second disciple with the name Simon. So some people believe that this other disciple was Simon, one of the 12 disciples, not Simon Peter, the famous Peter that we know, but there's another disciple named Simon that's listed among the 12 disciples, and so that's a possibility. Others, still associating Simon with the second disciple, point to the fact that Jesus had a half-brother named Simon, and so there's some association there as well. The third potential option is that if Clopas is if Cleopas is the same as Clopas, then potentially the other disciple who was walking with him was Mary. Now we have no way of knowing this at all, but I find this scene quite interesting. Husband and wife, Cleopas and Mary, on this journey 
to Emmaus. And did you notice as we read through it, it says that they were arguing. And so they're arguing back and forth. And I'm sure she was right and he was wrong in whatever they were talking about. But here they are on the road processing together what they had seen and experienced. And I don't know about you, every time I read a passage of Scripture like this, I try to, to, to picture in my mind, even if the picture's really, really wrong, I try to picture what is going on in the scene. And so I picture these two disciples on the road processing together, talking about what had just happened, arguing at different points about what had just happened. And did you notice as Jesus comes up alongside of them that it said, the text says that they were prevented from being able to recognize Jesus. So what I understand from that is that though Jesus was recognizable, it wasn't his appearance that had changed, but for some reason God did not allow them to recognize who Jesus was. The reason being they needed to understand something, and then through them we needed to understand something too. You ever get annoyed when you're out in public, maybe having a conversation uh, with someone, maybe it's your spouse, and you feel like there are other people who are listening in on your conversation? Imagine what it was like for these disciples as they are on the road. They're arguing back and forth. Jesus comes up alongside of them and says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And this question stops them in their tracks. Like, I don't mean to be rude. But where have you been? Because what we're talking about is everything that's happened in Jerusalem. I don't know how you cannot know what we've been talking about. Are you living under a rock or something? We are talking about all that has happened within the last few days in Jerusalem. And Jesus' response, no. What happened in Jerusalem? Tell me about it. And so they go through the whole thing. Jesus of Nazareth, this great prophet, he did all kinds of great things, but he was handed over by our religious leaders to be sentenced to death, and he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah, the one who was going to redeem Israel, but then he died, and so we're like, we're not really sure, but then we got this report this morning. Some of the ladies who were with us, they went to the tomb, they saw it was empty, but then there was this really strange story about an angel appearing to them and saying he was alive, and like, now we don't know what to think anymore. And then Jesus responds, and this is where I stop again. If I'm like reading the text for the very first time, I stop and say, well, wait a minute. How did they not know at this point? Because this guy who knows nothing all of a sudden becomes the one who knows everything. And he's like, I don't understand your questions. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer before entering his glory? Like, it seems like all of this makes sense to me. And then Jesus says, the entire Old Testament now, he wouldn't have referred to it as the Old Testament because to Jesus it was just Scripture, but for our purposes, literally the entire Old Testament points to everything that just happened. You want to see? And so then Jesus took his Mary Poppins bag, right, the one that holds the, the coat rack and all the other things down inside of it. He opens his Mary Poppins bag and pulls out a scroll and says, hey, let's check it out together. And so they begin processing all that the Scripture taught and how everything that had happened was all a part of God's plan. They got to the town of Emmaus. It was beginning to be late. It appeared, though, at this point to the disciples, this still unnamed traveler was going to continue on. And so they encouraged him to stay with them, um, and he agreed to do so. And then we read the words, and he took bread, and he broke it, 
and he passed it to him, and it was then that their eyes were open. It was like deja vu all over again, because as we read those words, we should be reminded of what Jesus did when he took the five loaves of bread, and he broke them and passed it to the disciples who passed it out to 5,000 men, plus all the women and children. It should remind us of what Jesus did just a few days before as he gathered with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, and took the bread, and he broke it, and he passed it to them. And so I just, I'm, I'm, again, imagining the scene, what this is like. And so as they receive the bread from Jesus, their eyes are open, they recognize him. And I just wonder if the eyes of the disciples met at the exact same time with the realization that this was, in fact, Jesus. And then as they turn to him, all of a sudden he's gone. And they turn back to one another and they say, I knew it was him all along. But they had come to realize through what Jesus taught them, that he had in fact risen from the dead and everything that happened was all a part of God's plan. It wasn't an accident. It was filled with meaning and purpose. God knew exactly what he was doing. Now let's go back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the message. What do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? I'm going to answer that question in just a second, but before I do, I'm going to address three potential groups of people that are represented today. The first group are those that don't know what to believe. You're not sure what to believe. It's possible that we have some people here who are in church for the very first time, or maybe the very first time in a long time, or even if you've been here a bunch of times before, in reality, like you would say, I just don't know what to believe. Maybe some of you have heard about Jesus. Maybe you haven't heard that much. Maybe you've heard that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross, but it seems like that's pretty far-fetched. And maybe you know that those things are what Christians say the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, but when it comes down to it, you're not really sure because like, how do you know whether or not we should trust the Bible? And so because of all of those questions and many, many more, you're just not really sure what to believe. The second group of people are those who are doubting what you have believed. So maybe you came to, to faith as a child. And so for much of your life, if somebody were to have asked you what you believe, you would have uh, confidently declared, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross but now you're not so sure. And maybe part of the reason that you're not so sure is because you've seen some hypocrisy. People who say they believed one thing and then act very differently. Maybe you've been hurt by that hypocrisy. Maybe you don't want to be associated with people who act so differently than what they say they believe. Maybe there was a time in your life where you had a question about faith. And you asked somebody that you thought might be able to help, and, and it was a legitimate question, but the response that you got to that question was, why would you ask something like that? Just believe. But just believe is not good enough anymore. You want a better answer than that. And if there isn't a better answer, well... That's why you're doubting what you've believed. 
the third group, are, are those who are convinced about what you believe, but recognize at times it might be helpful to be reminded as to why we believe what we believe. So for you, hold your beliefs with confidence and conviction. You believe that there is no storm that is so strong that would shake the foundation of your faith. For you, God said it, you believe it, and that settles it, and that's great. But yet at the same time, every once in a while, it's helpful to be reminded why we actually believe what we do believe. In the next few minutes, I hope to address all three groups. So what do we believe? I think as we begin to sort through what it is that we believe, it's important to understand the core of the Christian faith, separate from oftentimes the stuff in the periphery that gets associated with the core of the Christian faith. Because depending on the the circles that you kind of run in or listen to, uh, lots of different things could be associated with the core of Christian faith. So what I mean is, like de- again, depending on what you listen to or, or the conversations that you have, there are some people who would say that to be a Christian, you absolutely have to believe that the earth is 8,000 years old or less. Now, I don't think that's the core of the Christian faith. There are some Christians who believe that. There are many that don't. Others would say that a core of the Christian faith means that you have to vote in a certain way. Now, I believe that our faith should shape and influence the way that we interact with the world around us on a wide variety of issues, probably just about everything. But yet at the same time, I don't find in the Bible that there's a litmus test of voting that relates to our faith. Again, depending on the circle, you might find that, well, if you're really a Christian, then you do certain things. And uh, maybe it's like miraculous sort of things happen or the way that God speaks to you or whatever it is. And again, I'm not sure that those things are the core of the Christian faith. Because when it comes down to it, I think this is what we have to understand. What is the the core of our faith versus the stuff that hangs out on the periphery of our faith a lot of times? So what is the core of the Christian faith? I think when it comes down to it, there's really one single question, maybe even better yet, one single person. Because it's Jesus. The core of the Christian faith is who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why he did it. So I want to give you the answer to those questions based on what I believe the Bible teaches and kind of what we've talked about over the last several weeks together. Who is Jesus? That's the first question. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God who was uniquely and miraculously born of the Virgin Mary. And that though Joseph could be described as his earthly adoptive father. Jesus is the son of God, God in the flesh. And while, at, while being God in the flesh at the same time, he is also completely human and therefore understands what it's like to be us. And so while he understands our feelings, he understands our emotions, he has been tempted in every way like we are, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. I think that's who Jesus is. What did Jesus come to do? He died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. If we go back to 
these disciples on this journey, like this is what they are processing. They had watched Jesus die. They'd heard reports of the resurrection, but they didn't really know what to believe. They didn't know whether those things were really true. But then as they come to understand that Jesus was the one who was talking to them, they came to understand that this was all a part of God's plan and they were witnesses to the resurrection. So what Jesus came to do is he died on the cross for our sins, and it's the resurrection that proves his victory over sin. Then the final question, well, why did he do it? It's because of his love for you and for me. Because he wanted to be in a relationship with us, and the only way for that to happen was for the punishment for sin to be paid. Jesus is the Son of God who laid down his life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again from the dead so that we could have a relationship with him that should change everything about us and last forever. And he did it because of his love. But I know some of you are thinking, but how can we be so sure? Like, how do we know all of this isn't just made up after the fact? Like, how do we know that the Bible is true and the stories that we read about Jesus in the Bible are true? And that's what I think is great about our faith, because I think our faith is not a blind leap of faith. It's an evidence-based faith. There's evidence that backs it up. So now, can I prove that all of the things that we read about Jesus in the Bible are absolutely true? No, I can't do that. But what I think I can do is provide some evidence that walks you up to the line of faith and then invite you to take that step across. Because the idea that all this stuff is made up, it's not true. Did you know that we have secular, non-biblical authors who write about Jesus? Jewish historians Philo and Josephus, in their writings, they write about a prophet named Jesus. Now, they don't talk about you know, his death and resurrection and stuff like that, but at the very least, we know that Jesus wasn't just a figment of somebody's imagination well after the fact because they write about Jesus at the time that he was alive. Not only that, I know people will say, well, the stories in the Bible, they're made up hundreds of years after the fact, but that's not true either because we have a manuscript fragment from the Gospel of John that dates back to 125 A.D., less than 100 years after the death of Jesus. And this is really significant. There's some manuscript science that's involved, but nobody believes that the fragment that we have is the original, that the original dates back at least into the previous generation. So the significance of that is we understand that the stories of Jesus were written down and were being circulated within a generation of the time that Jesus lived. Now, here's why that's important. People were still alive when Jesus died. So they could have said, listen, I was there. That didn't happen. But we don't have any record of anybody ever doing that. We also have the writings of guys who are referred to as the church fathers. They're kind of the church leaders after the apostles, dating back into the second century. And they are writing about Jesus, certainly writing as if all the things that the Bible says are in fact true and actually happened. So I want you to understand our faith is an evidence-based faith. Like I'm not saying pay no attention to this mound of evidence that would lead you to believe something different than what the Bible teaches. What I'm saying is let's look at the evidence 
Because I think the evidence points us to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did. And the question is not what does the Bible say, but the question is what do you believe? We've talked at the beginning of this series that the, the purpose of this series was to say we aren't enough, but Jesus is. And I think that's the question that we have to wrestle with. At some point in your life, are you willing to say, you know what, I'm not enough, but Jesus is. And it's then that you take that step across that line of faith and you trust Jesus as your Savior, which allows you to enter into a life-changing relationship with God so that your faith begins to come alive and begins to guide everything that you do and all the decisions that you make. Because I think the reality is when we begin to understand that while we weren't enough, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son who was willing to lay down his life for us, died a horrific death on the cross, but he rose again from the dead, proving his victory over sin. That is a life-changing message. Now, can I prove it 100%? No. But I can invite you to take that step across the line of faith. Just one simple step to trust the person and work of Jesus because you're not enough, but Jesus is. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I'm going to close this in prayer here in, in just a second, but as I do, I want you to be thinking about what you believe because maybe for some of you, you weren't when you walked into the room this morning, you weren't sure what to believe, but maybe for the very first time, you're ready to take that step across that line of faith because you believe that Jesus is enough for you. And so if you're ready to make that decision today, I would encourage you to share that with someone. The Bible says that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved, which means we'll enter into a relationship with God that lasts forever. It's just a matter of belief. So maybe on the way out this morning, you want to say something to me or Maybe somebody that you're with, you want to share that with them, or maybe you just send me an email this week and say, hey, like, I took that step today. Because the most important question that we'll ever ask and answer is what do we believe about Jesus? Will you pray with me, Heavenly Father? Thank you so much for your love. Because you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who willingly laid down his life for us. He rose again from the dead so that we could be brought into a relationship with you. Father, I declare based on my life experience, based on what you say in your word, I'm not enough. But I'm so thankful that Jesus is and I pray that everyone who is here this morning, those that are watching online, that we would all come to that same conclusion and that our lives would be changed through our knowledge and understanding of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin. Thank you for giving grace that is more. Because when we're not enough, we know that Jesus is. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.